Bibles in front of you, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read the uh, paragraph entitled Divisions in the Church from verse 10 down to verse 17, and it would be helpful if you could either look on with a neighbour or have that open in front of you both now and later on. Let us hear the word of the Lord together through the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you may agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's um, pause to pray together and ask God for his help as we look at his word. Our Father in heaven, um, as we come to consider the great theme of unity, Lord, we realize that we all say amen to that very easily and pay lip service to it, yet we naturally always think that it's other people's problem and that we are the ones that are in the right. Lord, we want to repent of some of the contortions of self-justification that we frequently go through. And Lord, we want to be open to your Holy Spirit tonight to um, find areas of our lives where our attitudes and maybe our actions too do need to be changed and repaired and highlighted. And so, Father, we submit to the authority of your word. We ask for you to speak. We ask that you might challenge us in new ways. We ask that we would understand more of your word, of your great plan for us as your a church and that our understanding of um, who the Lord Jesus is and why he came would grow as well. Lord, we ask too that you would prepare our hearts for communion later on as we prepare to um, remember uh, the death of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we ask these things now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm not sure how many of you recognize uh, this man. This is Ian Duncan Smith, the um, current leader of the Conservative Party. The reason why some of you might not have recognized him is because he's been consistently criticized for having a low profile. In actual fact, he's even been called the quiet man of British politics, and the title seems to have stuck. I must admit it does strike me as rather odd why anyone would criticize a, a a politician for being too quiet, but nonetheless, that is what some people seem to be saying. I think too we need to say that Ian Duncan Smith does come over as being very humble, 
and very approachable and very likable and sincere about what he believes in, even if you don't happen to agree with all of his politics. He also hasn't had a very easy job so far, has he? One of the problems that he's consistently faced is the splits and the divisions and the struggles for unity within, within his own political party. You might remember the famous Unite or Die speech that he made back in November and how the media and other people are perhaps constantly talking about whether other people like Kenneth Clark are kind of uh, secretly plotting some kind of leadership challenge or coup. On the one hand, he has Eurosceptics who would like Britain to have less to do with the European Union. And on the other hand, he has groups of uh, social liberals who are very keen to modernise the party and make it more inclusive and uh, tolerant and things like that. And so he has to work and struggle to keep the party unified as a result. And from our scripture passage tonight, I am sure that the Apostle Paul would in some sense have been able to sympathise with him because he too was facing a situation where people were grouping around different leaders and struggling to be united, not in any political party, but in the church and specifically the church in a place called Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. You might remember from uh, last time how Paul had founded the church at Corinth and how he was now writing to it to try and sort out some of the problems and issues that had emerged there. And right at the top of his list was this problem of disunity, divisions, strife, factionalism. And so he starts to address this particular problem in the uh, reading that we read together just a few moments ago. In actual fact, he will continue to address this problem for something like the next four chapters. But he actually begins in these verses by appealing for unity and laying out the problem as he saw it in Corinth. And because he's addressing this problem of disunity in the church, what he says to the church at Corinth has an awful lot to say to us, to the church today as well, in our own struggles with things like um, disunity and strife and leaders and groups coming around them, that kind of thing. And so as we look at these verses, we will see that the key to unity is not to fall into the trap of idolizing human leaders, but is to keep Jesus and his cross at the center of everything that we do. Not to fall into the trap of idolizing human leaders, but to keep Jesus and his cross at the center of everything that we do. So then I've got three points about unity. Um, first of all, how unity is defined. And we can see this if you look with me for a moment at verse 10. And if you glance at that, you can see that Paul appeals for unity. And as he does, he uses three phrases to describe exactly what he means by that. So he says that all of you may agree with one another, that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The key one there is number one, where he appeals to the Corinthians to agree with one another. Now, literally there, it says that they should all speak the same thing. 
Obviously, what was happening in the church was that people were all saying different things. In verse 12, a wee bit later on, he gives us an idea of some of the different slogans, if you like, that people were throwing around. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I um, follow Cephas, and so on. And so Paul appeals to them all to say the same thing. At the moment, they sounded like some kind of cat's chorus that was making a horrendous racket. And Paul says that they are to say the same thing. He wants them all to be singing from the same hymn sheet, if you like. Then he goes on to expand this and reiterate it a little bit in the next two phrases. He says that there are to be no divisions among them, but that they are to be perfectly united in mind and thought. In the original there, he's using a, um, a clothing uh, idea. Literally, he says that there are to be no tears or rips among them, but they are to be perfectly knit together, having the same mindset and the same way of thinking. The word that he uses there for being perfectly knit together is the same word that's used in the Gospels for the, for the uh, Jesus' disciples who were um, fishermen mending their nets. The idea is that the church in Corinth was getting torn like a garment and needs to be repaired or mended or sewn up and restored to what it had been previously. It's also interesting that the Apostle Paul says that they were to be united in mind and thought. That's interesting, isn't it? Because unity for Paul, then, is not something that's just going to be achieved by meeting together or by not having any denominations or by having one big denomination or anything like, like that. Instead, unity for Paul is about something internal. It's about our mindset, our attitudes to one another, the way that we think, whether we're singing from the same hymn sheet, whether we're all going in the same direction or not. I don't think for a moment this means that Christians all have to have the same taste in music, for instance, or even the same uh, political opinions for that matter. Instead, I think it's quite clear that the kind of unity that Paul has in mind here is internal, and it's unity about Jesus. I think Paul's pastoral heart is to have a church that is so united about the truths of Jesus that there's no room for factions and quarrels about different leaders to break out. They are all to be of one mind, all saying the same thing, all speaking the same words, the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think one um, possible application of this to us is to things like where the um, Apostles' Creed, for instance, or the Church's Statement of um, Faith, or the Christian Union's doctrinal basis are so important. You see, those things are not just historical relics or things left over from uh, ancient history that we can just forget about. Instead, they are actually living statements of truth about Jesus that have been drawn up over the course of church history to preserve unity and to guard against error. The whole idea of them is that they enable God's people to say the same thing together, just like here. They unify us to all of God's people everywhere and throughout history as with one voice, we affirm all the same glorious truths about Jesus together. That's why when you become a member of 
Charlotte Chapel. You have to say that you are in agreement with a statement about what we believe about Jesus and the scriptures and the fundamental basics of the Christian faith. Now, there's still a lot of scope for diversity. If I were to go round and interview all the church uh, members, I'm sure I would find lots of different views about things like the second coming or about spiritual gifts or the precise mechanism by which God created the world. But we are all agreed about Jesus. And that's the main thing, isn't it? See, by having a, a, a doctrinal statement like that, by having some kind of creed, we're trying to do justice to what Paul says here. That we should all have the same mindset. That we should all be going in the same direction. We should all be singing from the same hymn sheet. See, unity it does not mean uniformity. Nor does it mean a free-for-all where everyone can just believe whatever they want. Instead, it is based on a set of common beliefs from God's Word that we can all affirm together. So then, that's uh, how unity is defined. Then let's move on and look at how unity is threatened. After appealing for unity in verse 10, the Apostle Paul moves on to describe the exact situation that existed on the ground in Corinth. So in verses 11 and 12, we can see what the precise problem was. There were different people in the church who were grouping themselves around Christian leaders in an unhelpful way. So there were some in the church who were pledging their allegiance to Paul. He was the founder of the church, and so some felt that they should follow him and be loyal to him as he was the first person who preached the gospel to them. Others in the church were obviously following Apollos. Apollos was probably the most talented preacher that the early church had. He was well known for his eloquence and learning and his power of speech and probably spoke in quite a kind of high-flying, intellectual, rhetorical style that was all the rage in Corinth. And the people loved it. His style of preaching seemed to make the gospel so much more attractive to outsiders. And so one particular group had started to group themselves around him and to follow him as a result. Then obviously, some in the early church who were following Cephas, that is, Peter, as leader of the twelve disciples and one of the apostles, he was always going to be able to get um, some kind of following, probably, in any of the early churches. And then there was obviously this fourth group who took a slightly more super-spiritual attitude towards things. And they said that they followed Christ. They were probably saying that they were slightly superior to everybody else. Maybe they were even saying that they were followers of Christ in a way that the others weren't. And they were starting to hive off on their own as they resect as a result. And so this awful situation had developed where one group was declaring their allegiance to a particular leader over and against another. I follow Paul. He's the one who founded our church, don't you know? Apollos is the finest preacher, without doubt, for miles around. The Apostle Peter was the one who Jesus himself said was leader of the church, so we ought to be following him. I follow Christ, actually, therefore I'm superior to all of you. Thank you very much. It had degenerated into the first century equivalent of something like pop idols where people were lining up to vote for their favourite Christian celebrity. I vote for Gareth because he has the best voice. Will is just lovely. You have to vote for him, surely. 
Darius. It's so genuine and sincere and writes all his own songs. Surely he is the best. That was the kind of squabbling that was going on. And in the church, each group was just boasting about its own leader. And they were all starting to quarrel and argue as a result. The church probably hadn't split, but it probably had developed into this unhealthy tendency to get embroiled in dissensions and factions about which leader was best. And what Paul is saying is that our unity is threatened as soon as we start idolizing our favorite leaders and going off into our different groups. You really don't need to be a genius to see the modern church here, do you? One says, I follow John Stott. Another, I follow Bill Hybels. Still another says, I follow Derek Crime. And yet another, I don't follow anyone. I'm just a simple Christian. I follow Christ. See, at the root of all this is pride, isn't it? We get a sense of self-importance and status from the particular leaders or group who we attach ourselves to. I'm sure you've probably met the kind of person who loves to name drop into conversation the long list of famous speakers who they've met and known. In, in some cases, people sometimes even adopt an entirely new vocabulary or way of speaking in order to emulate their Christian heroes. Now, we have to say that in, uh, in some cases, this can be the result of a Christian leader who has genuinely been a help to someone in their spiritual life or maybe even baptised them. And it's certainly good to, to, to show your appreciation and respect to someone who has helped you in your Christian walk. But what Paul is saying here is that sometimes things can go way beyond that. So kind of a personality cult or cult of celebrity where someone loses sight of the fact that it's actually Christ and God who is speaking through them and hangs on their every word as if God couldn't possibly speak for anyone else or any other group apart from this little group over here which just I happen to be part of and so on. And Paul wants us to understand just how damaging this can be. To start, it's damaging to the individual if their whole outlook and Christian faith is tied up with one particular preacher or one particular group and their own little way of doing things. How restrictive. It means that their faith is always going to be kind of impoverished and stunted and narrow and like the breadth and a perspective and richness that other people and other groups have to offer. More seriously, if that leader that they put so much confidence in ever falls, and Christian leaders do fall, as I know only too well, then it pulls the whole carpet from under their feet and leaves them floundering in midair and feeling let down with their faith shipwrecked and devastated as a result. It's damaging to the individual. It's also damaging to the church. Different cliques and groups all following different leaders arguing and boasting about who is best is no way for the body of Christ to operate. It's the kind of infighting and squabbling that loses the church credibility in the eyes of the world and brings shame on all of us. You're probably as embarrassed and as ashamed as me when someone points out the fragmented and divided and corrupt state of the church and says that the gospel of Jesus Christ can't possibly be true as a result. And Paul says that all that kind of thing starts with this 
herd mentality and an unhelpful tendency to form groups around our favourite heroes. He said it's good to appreciate our leaders. We must certainly love and respect them. But we must not idolise them. If we do, then we will threaten the unity of the church. Then, number three, and finally, how unity is maintained. We can see this in the remaining uh, scripture verses from verse 13 to verse 17. And here, the Apostle Paul finally moves on to a more positive agenda and reminds the Corinthians of how they are to foster a spirit of unity and oneness in the church. His basic point is the reason that they are so disunited is because they have taken their eyes off Jesus, off the cross, and off the gospel, and so need to get reacquainted and re-familiarized all over again with these fundamental, basic gospel truths. Their attitude to baptism epitomizes just how far they've let things slip. Evidently, they were far more concerned with who had actually baptized them rather than the name of the person who they'd been baptised into. They were more concerned if it was Paul or Apollos or whoever, what particular group they were in, rather than the name of Christ. How tragic. And so Paul reminds them that what happened when they were baptised was really a declaration or promise of allegiance and loyalty to Jesus. When they were baptised, they were pledging their loyalty to him. And so it was completely incongruous for them to be claiming loyalty to other groups or leaders in the church. If they were baptised into Christ, then why were they saying, I follow Paul? Surely they all ought to have, with one um, voice, speaking the same thing, saying, we all follow Christ. And even deeper malady was that the church in Corinth seems to have been infected with some ideas from the surrounding pagan culture. And in particular, it seems as if some in in the church had become enamoured with some of the Greek philosophers and rhetoric, and that great speeches were being delivered very eloquently, but actually had very little spiritual value. That's almost certainly what Paul's talking about there in verse 17 when he talks about words of human wisdom. He says that his his gospel is not with words of human wisdom. He's kind of contrasting the gospel that he preached, which centred on the cross of Christ, with the gospel that the Corinthians craved, which was a worldly gospel filled with impressive words and philosophy, but was actually empty of the radical, life-changing, reconciling, forgiving message of the cross. In, in both of these situations, in both their attitude to baptism and to human wisdom, you see the problem was the same. They had got distracted. They had taken their eyes off Jesus. They had shifted their focus away from the cross and away from the authentic gospel onto themselves, what they wanted, their priorities, their needs, and so on. And it's no surprise, really, when that happens, that the result is squabbling and infighting and lack of unity. Instead, they and we need to adopt Paul's priorities here and focus on what really counts. And I I think that's well summarised for us in verse 17, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ 
be emptied of its power. Real unity is only going to be maintained if we keep our focus on Jesus, the centrality of the cross, and the commission to take that message to our friends and neighbours in Edinburgh. So two applications from this. First of all, what I've termed an encouragement from the national scene. I think actually, just to broaden the scope and horizons a little bit, I think one of the most encouraging things happening nationally in the UK at the moment is that we're actually seeing this kind of gospel unity that focuses on Christ, the cross and the gospel, an awful lot more. What is increasingly going on is that people are defining themselves not by their denominational labels, but by their commitment to the work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. I think it's fair to say too that this affects everyone, but is especially true amongst the younger generation. When someone moves to a new area, they're less concerned about whether the church is a Baptist or Anglican or whatever, than whether or not it, it is preaching Christ. And I think one reason for this is that over the last uh, 60, 70 years or so, that many, many Christians have increasingly been working well together in missionary organizations and other church groups. So groups like the Evangelical Alliance, or the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship, or Operation Mobilization, or Latin Link, and a whole host of others have been uniting people in the work of evangelism who are committed to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus under a common flag. I think something else that's helped have been lots of large conferences, things like Keswick and Spring Harvest, where thousands of Christians gather from all different denominations and walks of life and all different church backgrounds and upbringings to sing together, to receive teaching from God's word. Those things have worked wonders in bringing a new spirit of unity into the church in the UK. Now, I'm not being naive. I think there are still huge issues that need to be worked on that are definitely going to come up within the next few years. But there is, I think, a diluting of denominational loyalty and a refocusing on Christ and the gospel. And I think that has to be good and has to be applauded and embraced. So that's an encouragement from the national scene. However, there's also, I believe, a challenge to the local church. The real challenge for us is to work out what this kind of gospel unity looks like here, here at local level, at Charlotte Chapel and in Edinburgh. And I think this fundamentally means that we have to work hard at keeping the cross central and evangelism as a as a priority on the agenda. Instead of getting distracted by the 101 other issues, many of them worthy causes that are always trying to compete for our time and attention. Maybe it means that we need to hold more loosely to some of the things that we maybe uh, cherish in our church experience, but that aren't actually essential gospel issues. There are areas where we have to learn to live with our differences for the sake of unity of the church and getting the gospel out to more people. There is nothing worse, I think, than meeting someone who seems to have been around every single church in a town and falling out with all of them, especially if they did it in the name of the, of the, of the truth. Instead, we need people that bring blessing and unity on the church, and they are the opposite kind of folk. 
people like the Pentecostal couple who accept the rigors of reformed worship because that happens to be the only church committed to taking the gospel onto the particular council estate where they live. Or the retired gentleman who doesn't always agree with the theology of the younger pastor but who comes along anyway and, and helps out because they need people who are committed to praying for their missionaries. Or the young woman or student who maybe used their summer holidays to do a missions trip abroad that ended up encouraging their home church so much that they became united as a result. See, the a challenge of us is, is to work out what this putting the cross first means for us in our context. The challenge may be for us to be like one of those examples. Here at Charlotte Chapel, if we prioritise Jesus, the cross and the gospel, we will do two things. We, we will be effective at taking the message to a lost world and we will maintain our unity as well. So then, conclusion. A brief summary of what we have seen so far. Unity is defined as saying the same thing together about Jesus. Unity is threatened when we idolise Christian leaders and start hiving off into our own little groups. And unity is maintained when we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and get stuck into the work of evangelism. It's highly appropriate that in a few moments' time we're going to have communion. Because communion is all about unity. It is a family meal where we share together bread and wine and remember the death of Jesus on our behalf. And as is always the case with any family meal, there are three things that are necessary for it. First of all, you have to have the head of the family, don't you? And Jesus has promised to be here for this family meal, not in the elements, the bread and the wine, but through his Holy Spirit. And we communicate him, and we communicate with him through prayer and faith and as we hear his word. And it is he himself who, as the head, invites us to come to his table. Then, then secondly, you have to join the family. A family meal is only meaningful to you if you are part of the family. So if you are here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, and you know that you're not part of the family, you can join the family right now. You can come to the cross just as you are, praying to God, ready to turn away from your sin, and ask God to forgive you with confidence, knowing that Jesus took your punishment when he died. All families, uh, you have to be born into them. This isn't a um, family that you physically have to be born into, but it is a family that you have to be spiritually born into. And then number three, thirdly, we all have to get on harmoniously together. It is true that there are going to be times when little Jimmy isn't going to get on with Aunt Agatha and the pair of them are going to wind each other up. However, Jesus has commanded that both of them sort it out and bury the hatchet before they come to eat together. In just a moment, we will share communion together as a church family. It's an expression of our unity. We do it to remember the cross and put the Lord Jesus at the forefront of our lives. We bring to it our struggles and our brokenness, our um, 
our failures and ask God to forgive us and give us the strength to go on. So, as we come tonight, let us come as a family. Let us acknowledge the head. Let us make sure that we have joined the family. And let us make sure that we are all getting on well with our brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Gracious God and living Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your desire that we ought to be one in mind and thought. And we ask, Lord, for your help to make this kind of gospel unity a reality among the groups that we are involved in, among this church and amongst the wider um, network of churches, Lord, that we are a, a part of here. We ask that you would enlarge our uh, understanding of what you are doing through your church, not just here in Edinburgh, but uh, elsewhere too, and that you would help us, Lord, each and everyone to be actively contributing to the unity of your body wherever we find ourselves. Lord, as we think about coming to um, com- communion now, we ask that we would uh, focus on and, and remember um, the Lord Jesus. And so we pray these things now in his name and for his sake. Amen. As we come to communion, we will stand and uh, sing a um, hymn that's really, in many ways, a hymn of repentance and of preparation for communion. It's called, While the Bread is Yet Unbroken, and we'll stand to sing. Let us all sing together.
Jesus said to him. 